We hope you enjoy listening to this weekly podcast from Lifeline Church. Find out more by visiting lifelinechurch.co.uk. everybody. Thank you, Andy. Makes me feel very, very warm, warm inside. Um, great. So we're going to be um, looking at a couple of different passages today. If we could just have that first slide. Cool. Oh, go back a bit. So um, if you're the type that likes to kind of look things up beforehand and, you know, stick your finger in your Bible or open up a new tab on your phone or whatever, feel free to, to do that. Um, but we're going to recap a little bit first. So jumping back two weeks, um, Jamie did a talk for us uh, called It All Starts With a Glimpse. Can everyone remember that? Some of you remember that? Yeah. It all starts with a glimpse. Um, and so we're going to be picking up that theme a bit more today, unpacking that, that concept um, of getting a glimpse of God, catching a sight of God. So Jamie talked about there being lots of things we can do as a church, um, different ways that we as a people, as a body, can represent who Jesus is, um, lots of different expressions. And actually, we've had a lot of different talks from different people um, over the past little while encouraging us in, in these things, things like sharing life, things like giving testimony, things like loving one another, fantastic things, all good things. But Jamie's point was... If we're doing these things and we're not empowered by a living encounter with him, if these things are just because we've learned that these are what we should do and this is the thing that we do because we're part of Lifeline Church and, and it's the right thing to do, then it kind of becomes a little bit like spinning plates. It's not really full of life. It's just we, we're doing things because, because we're doing it. But if we catch a sight of him, if we get a glimpse of our loving father, if if our actions flow from an encounter with his presence, then it's completely different. Um, this is quite a familiar concept to us now, the, the snot sucker concept. I had to, had to mention it today. Um, the thing you use if, if your small child has snot in their nose and they can't blow it out, um, haven't quite learned how to, how to blow their nose, the thing that lets you, as a parent, kind of do, do the honourable thing and, and suck it out. The point that Jamie made with this um, was that when he received it as a gift, it was the most disgusting thing he'd ever seen. Didn't want to use it. Put it in a drawer. But as soon as his son was born, as soon as Arthur was born, and he had a, a bogey in his nose, he grabbed that thing and he used it. And he delighted to use it. Because he caught a sight of his son, he'd had a glimpse of his son, and it changed everything for him. So we're going to unpack that a little bit more today. What does this mean? What does catching a sight of him mean? Because I don't know about you, but for me, having grown up in, in church, having grown up in youth, I kind of used to have this idea that, that catching a sight of God or encountering God was kind of a mysterious thing, a little bit unpredictable Maybe um, as a young person, we would go away on a weekend away every year, and um, there'd be many things we'd, we'd do on the weekend away. We'd have a massive wide game, which was basically running around like headless chickens in a field trying to rugby tackle one another, and that happened every year. But we'd always have a space to wait on God 
and, and encounter him. And I remember as, as a young person, must have been like 12 or 11, just kind of in those times, in those settings, just standing there and just like looking around and seeing people crying and some people would be praying for one another, maybe people would be on the floor and people would start to be meeting with God and I would always feel, it doesn't really seem to be, to be happening for me. It's kind of, I, I wasn't really sure, sure what was happening. And there'd always be a time when the person um, who was leading the session would always say, right, we're officially finished for today, um, but we're going to continue waiting on God, and you can stay here if you'd like, but if you want to go, feel free to go. And, um, and I'd always be thinking, I, I know that I shouldn't go. I know that I kind of should stay here and carry on waiting on God, but I don't really seem to be meeting with him. What, what should I really be doing here? And, um, but, and it never really seemed to happen for me. So I, I kind of got this idea that meeting with God and encountering him could be a bit unpredictable. Maybe if all the conditions were right and the band was playing and, and you're in the right place and, and it all lined up, you might catch a sight of him. But maybe if it doesn't happen, you know, there, there's always next year. Maybe it will happen a bit, bit later on. And it took me a little while to realize this, this probably wasn't, wasn't the right way of, of viewing it. So we're going to unpack this, catching a sight of him today. And there's three points that I want to look at. So number one, it's an everyday thing. Number two, it's not enough. And number three, it's a doorway to delight. So we're going to do those one by one. So first of all, it's an everyday thing. So a few years ago, I talked about um, how God wants to fill the 95% of our lives. Um, what, what did I mean by that? So I, I kind of added up, did a little bit of maths and added up. If you combine all the sort of churchy stuff we do, so being here on a Sunday morning, maybe going to First Tuesday prayer, maybe you know, going on a weekend away or serving in some capacity or doing the things that we call church, that we do as a church, if you add all of those together across the course of a year, it only adds up to about 5% of our lives. So what are we doing the rest of the time? We're commuting to work. We're sitting in lessons in school. We're dropping kids off at school. We're maybe standing in the queue at Lidl, bracing ourselves for that bag-packing frenzy that, that happens at the end of it. We might be sc scrolling Instagram, doing very, very normal stuff. That's the 95% of our lives. But for some reason, it can be very easy to assume, like me, when we're catching a sight of him, it's most likely to happen in the 5%, in the times that we're here as a church, or the times that we're at a Bible camp, or the times that we're away on a weekend away. And I kind of want to challenge that a little bit this morning. And I'm, I'm not saying that these times are wrong, and I'm not saying that God doesn't want to encounter us in these times. He absolutely does. There's something amazing, actually, about all being together, and your main focus, your only goal is seeing him and encountering him. Those times are precious. But I just don't think that's the main place, that's the main way that he wants us to see him or glimpse him. I kind of think it's, it's a bit like the icing on the cake, but it's not the main substance of the cake. John shared with us a story, um, I forget how long ago, maybe a few, about a month ago, of one time that he met with God. And I love this story because it illustrates this so well. He was on the M25, not a very exciting place to be, I must say. Um, and I think he was carrying some, some weight, or there was stuff on his mind. Um, 
And it was a gloomy day, just like in the picture. But a song came into his head, and light broke through the clouds. Again, you know, not necessarily something that everybody would look at and think that's God. But for John in that moment, it was God speaking to him. God saying, I am here. I am with you. I love you. I'm your father. And for John, that changed everything in a moment. Very quiet, no hype, no build-up, no worship band, very mundane, very ordinary, and yet it was life-changing. And John remembers that encounter today. He cherishes it. It's still living with him. But it's God in the everyday, in those quiet, unexpected places. This summer, um, me and my family went, went away for a few days to Kent. Um, very nice. For some reason, for me, when I go on holiday, those are the times, I don't know why, but the times that, that often kind of anxiety comes in, just little niggly thoughts. I don't know if it's because, like, all the kind of normal stuff of life, the to-do list is all kind of put to one side and the busyness isn't there to distract me. Um, but, but often I find myself in those times of being away. I, there's just these little anxieties that come. I don't know where they, where they come from. And this particular holiday... Um, I just realized I was carrying this, this irrational anxiety about something. Um, and, and holidays are busy, and particularly when you've got small kids, it's like you're always planning ahead. You're always one step ahead. You've got something planned for every minute of the day. And it just didn't really feel like I had any time to kind of process this or think about this, but it was just like kind of there in, inside. I remember one evening, we just put the kids to bed. I just said to Jane, I'm just feeling a bit unsettled about something. There's just this, this anxiety there. And thankfully, Jane was very, very helpful in that, in that situation. She said, what has God said about it if you've kind of taken it to him? And I was like, yeah, but it's been busy. I haven't really had time to talk to God. And, you know, we've just been doing, doing tons of stuff. And she was like, well, you know, we've got 15 minutes now. We're, you know, about to eat dinner. Why don't you just, just chat to him now? So I did. And you know what? In that moment, just that tiny, tiny moment that I just turned aside poured out what I was feeling to God, I actually kind of said to God, this is what I'm feeling, this is specifically what I'm feeling. He came in and he changed it. He met with me. He completely rewired my thinking in that moment and turned that moment around. Again, no fanfare, very quiet, very mundane, didn't take long. You know, this wasn't like a half hour thing, it was just like a 10 minute thing, stopping and turning to God. But I caught a sight of him. And for me, over the years, that's what it's been like. That's been the pattern. I can probably, if I'm honest, count on my fingers the amount of time in a corporate setting, worship setting, I've, I've had an you know, encounter with God. But I've completely lost count of the amount of times in normal life I've glimpsed him in different things, very ordinary things, maybe something I read, maybe something someone says to me as I chat something through with someone, maybe just taking a bit of time out of my day putting something to one side, clearing space for him, and he's come in and he's met with me. And I can name a number of those examples, um, but for me, that's, that's the pattern, that's what happens. Right, we're going to read a Bible passage now. Um, I'm just going to read it for us briefly. It's John 21, verses 3 to 9. Just to give a bit of context, this is the moment where Jesus has he's died, he's raised from the dead. He's actually appeared to his disciples already once, some of them. Um, and this is one of the other times when he shows himself to them as risen, 
as um, back from the dead. So pick up in, in verse 3. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. So the disciples at this point, they're kind of not really sure what to do. They're kind of in that in-between moment. You know, they kind of, Jesus hasn't fully come and given them the instructions to go out to all the world. They're kind of not really sure what to do. And so they decide to go fishing. I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but his disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he'd stripped for work, jumped into the water and headed to shore. I never quite understand that bit. Why did he put his clothes on before jumping? But anyway... The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from the shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. I find it so interesting that this is one of the ways Jesus chooses to reveal himself to his closest followers um, and friends. There's a book called Beautiful Outlaw by a guy called John Eldridge, which uh, puts this wonderfully and... um, Where are you? Ah, I have a special reader today who's going to help me read this. (laughs) This is a treat. You're getting David Simmons to read for you this morning. Whoever he is. Notice how casually Jesus enters the scene. His best friends don't even know it's him. This is the resurrected Lord, mind you. Ruler of the heavens and the earth. Jesus could have anointed, announced his risen presence on the beach with radiant glory. He knows that there's nothing in the world that would help his mates more than to see him again. He certainly could have shouted in his commanding way, It is I, the Lord, come thou unto me. But he doesn't. He does exactly the opposite. He hides. He hides himself a bit longer to let it play out. He simply stands on the shore, hands in his pockets like a tourist, and asks the curious question that passers-by always do of fishermen. Catch anything? Thank you. I love that story. And it's one of those ones, the more you think about it, the more it just like, it's just baffling. It's just amazing. Like this is this, we, we kind of take it for granted sometimes, these stories. But Jesus could have been hovering five feet off the ground, surrounded by angels. He could have given a massive, dramatic sermon on the mountaintop, surrounded by hordes of people. But he didn't. He shows up on the beach cooking breakfast. And this is what causes the penny to drop for his disciples. Not his majesty or his authority, but his interest and involvement in their everyday lives, in the things that matter to them, you know, fishing. And when you think about it, that's what Jesus does all along, isn't it? That, that's his life. That's his ministry. God didn't send Jesus to do a lecture series in the temple, you know, about salvation. He didn't send Jesus to host a festival or, or a conference. 
He sent him to do life with his people, to live with them, to eat with them, to work with them, go fishing with them, to laugh and cry with them, and ultimately to die for them. And I think he's exactly the same today. I think he wants us to catch a sight of him in those moments, in our everyday, in our normal lives. Great. So, point two, catching sight of him. It's not enough. Um, We're going to move to another passage. So this is John chapter 6, verses 25 to 33. Um, Moses, if you'd like to come up. So at this point, um, just again, a bit of context. We're following a crowd of people who are searching for Jesus. They're following him around, and they find him. And this is what they say to him when they find him. They found him on the other side of the lake and, and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Right, we're going to unpack this a little bit, because there's a lot going on in this passage. Um, and again, just to give a bit of context, this, this is right in the middle of chapter 6 of John. It's quite a famous chapter. A huge amount happens in John chapter 6, so much so, it's very, very hard to summarize. Um, but I'm going to try. <laughs> um, so we're going to fast forward a little bit, and then we're going to look at this passage again, then we're going to jump ahead to what happens afterwards. So really, John chapter 6 is the story of two groups of people following Jesus, okay? You have a very, very big group, and that's the group that's talking to him in, in what we, the passage we just heard, 5,000 people, and you have a much smaller group, which is Jesus' closest followers, um, his 12 disciples, and it's the difference in attitude of these two groups that is the kind of key I want, I want to um, highlight. So right at the beginning of the chapter, right at the start of of chapter 6, we have a very famous story, a very famous miracle. It's the feeding of the 5,000, okay? So 5,000 people find Jesus. They follow him to this mountaintop. They've seen him teaching. They're amazed by his teaching. They're amazed by his healings. He's healed a bunch of people. And they're on this mountaintop in the middle of nowhere, blazing heat. They're hungry. They've been there all day. um, And they have nothing to eat. And all that they have is this one boy has a little packed lunch, five loaves, two fish. And um, if you're familiar with the story, 
Jesus takes the lunch, he blesses it, and then it's enough to feed 5,000 people. It's, it's more than 5,000 people. It's actually 5,000 men. There was probably a lot more than that. So a miracle on a huge scale, a gigantic scale. Incredible. So that, that starts off the chapter. Fast forward a little bit. Jesus and his disciples have crossed over the Sea of Galilee, so they've gone completely to a different town, leaving the people on the other side. And this crowd of people decide, we're going to go following Jesus, we're going to go looking for him. They're impressed by what they've seen. They want to find him. So they walk all the way around the Sea of Galilee, which is quite a long way, and they find him on the other side. And they start questioning him. And Jesus starts engaging with them. And that's the passage we've just heard. So what, how does this conversation go? So it starts off, they found him on the other side of the lake. They asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? And he says, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you. Not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of approval. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're looking for me, not for me, not because of who I am, not because you love me. You're looking for me because I fed you, because you ate your fill, because I can give you what you want. I think sometimes when we're seeking an encounter from God, when we're looking to catch a sight of him, it becomes very easy to actually be coming to Jesus because of something he can give us rather than the fact that he's Jesus, he loves us, eternal life is in him. Sometimes that's even, I'm coming to you, Jesus, because I want that nice encounter feeling. I want that nice feeling of having an encounter with you. But it's not really about him, it's still about us. It might be a practical need. It could be something else. It could be that we're coming to him because of the value that we feel he gives us in in, in kind of serving or whatever it might be. But he's saying, come to me for who I am. In me is eternal life. So what happens next? So they say, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? And Jesus says, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. This is very key. Um, The word believe here is actually where we get faith, the word faith from a meaning of it is entrust yourself to. So entrust yourself to me. So this is far more than just an intellectual thing. You know, I believe it will rain tomorrow. Or I believe that Chelsea will win the premiership this season. It's, it's more than just an intellectual thing. It's not just an opinion. It's a costly thing. Entrust yourself to me. Believe in the one he has sent. He's saying, forget about works. Come to me. Really follow me. And everything else follows on from that. So what do they say after that? They say, okay, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to follow you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're asking him for a sign to prove that he's worth following, to prove that he's sent from God, which is a bit strange when you think about it, because remember, at the start of the chapter, he just multiplied a tiny lunch for 5,000 people. I mean, how much of a sign do you want? And yet, they're asking him for a sign. I think, for me, this shows that if I'm, if I'm seeking Jesus only for what he can give me, I'm going to have a, sh- a very short memory. 
my trust in him will only last as long as my comfort. And when that's challenged, when another need arises, another demand arises, I'm going to be saying, Jesus, I can't believe in you unless you give me another sign. What the people are actually doing here is they're referencing another Bible story in Exodus in the Old Testament where um, the Israelites have, have uh, left slavery in Egypt. You might be familiar with the story, Prince of Egypt, all of that kind of thing. Um, and Moses leads them out of Egypt, and they're in the middle of the desert. They're wandering around, and uh, Moses asks God, and, and God sends manna from heaven, this kind of daily, uh, strange kind of food stuff that comes out of the sky. And, um, and the people are basically saying, they're comparing Jesus to Moses. They're saying, okay, if you're a prophet worth following, if you're really worth listening to, like Moses... Do something like Moses did and show us. But Jesus completely breaks their categories. He says, I'll take you on further. He says, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. So you're wrong anyway. But now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is saying, it wasn't Moses that gave you bread. My father gave you bread. But anyway, I'm not here to give you bread. I'm here to be bread. I'm the one giving life to the world. I'm not just here to meet your needs. Come to me. And unsurprisingly, the people don't like this. They struggle with it. Um, actually, in, in verse 41, haven't got it on the slides here, but we're, we're moving a bit ahead through the chapter it says the people grumbled about him. They grumbled about Jesus because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They start saying, don't we know his father and mother? Don't we know Joseph and Mary? We know where he came from. How can he say he came down from heaven? That doesn't make sense. They start taking offense um, at Jesus. And Jesus actually raises the stakes a bit higher and says something else. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life in you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. So he doesn't start making it easier for the people at this point. He doesn't say, well, okay, right, you're struggling to understand. Let me make it a bit easier. I'll put it in a way that you can understand. He says, no, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And this is pretty much the nail in the coffin for the people. This is the sucker punch. Um, after this point, they, they basically walk away. They start to leave. They've had enough. It says... Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so all that are left at the end of chapter 6 are his 12 disciples. And Jesus turns to the 12 and asks, are you also going to leave? And Simon Peter says something quite famous uh, passage. He says, Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe, and again, that word believe, we've entrusted ourselves to you. And we know that you are the Holy One of God. So to summarize, start of the chapter, 5,000 people. End of the chapter, 12. Bad day in the office, really, for Jesus, isn't it? Um, but the point I want to make is, is this. Everybody in the passage, the 5,000 people, they had an encounter with Jesus. They'd been on the mountaintop. They'd seen him in the flesh. They'd seen him multiply food. They'd heard his teaching. They'd been face-to-face -face with Jesus. 
And yet, first of all, they completely forget what you've just done. They're asking for another sign. They're saying, we can't believe you unless you do something else. And then at the end, they don't like his, his words, his teaching, and they walk away, leaving only 12. Encounter alone is not enough. Catching a sight of him is not enough. It's what the encounter does. It's where the encounter leads us. Is it meeting in us a need for an experience? Or is it really leading us to the person of Jesus? Is it acting as as kind of food for us, that that temporary kind of food like like the people on the mountaintop? Or is it a sign that's pointing to the person of Jesus, to who he really is, to his heart for us, to the reality of him in our lives? Is it leading us to a life lived every moment in the day-to-day, in the ups and downs with him? I don't need an encounter. Sometimes I I get into my brain, I, I need an encounter with Jesus, I need an encounter with God. I don't need an encounter, I need him. I need Jesus. The encounter is just what gets me there. An encounter is great, but if it doesn't get me to a life lived with him, then it hasn't fulfilled its purpose. Um, as a youth leader over a number of years, I, I watched as various young people, time after time, would encounter God in, in different settings. It might be on a Friday night, it might be at Soul Survivor, it might be on a weekend away. But then sometimes as soon as months after that point, they'd be saying things like, do you know what, I, I don't know if I really believe God exists. And you kind of be thinking, but, but what happened like a few months ago? You had this amazing, amazing encounter. And again, this isn't to say that the encounter was bad or going to soul survive was bad. Again, those, those times are amazing. But if we don't bring him home with us from soul survivor or from Sunday mornings into that 95%, we can be a bit like those 5,000 people on the mountaintop. And those encounters can become a, a distant memory covered by whatever it is we've got on the stresses and strains of work or of school or whatever it might be. So we need to let that encounter lead us to true belief, truly entrusting ourselves to him. Remember, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he sent. Entrust yourself to the one he sent. And this is the difference between the 5,000 and Jesus' 12 disciples. The 12 disciples had, the, the matter was settled. They'd, they'd entrusted themselves to him. They said, we're going to follow you. We're going to give up everything and follow you. It didn't actually matter if they really understood what Jesus was going on about when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. I don't think they really understood that any more than the 5,000, but they knew that when he spoke, something burned inside of them. They knew that in him was the words of eternal life, and it changed something deep inside of them. The matter was settled. So this leads on to the final um, point that I want to make, and that's that it's a doorway to delight. And this is another difference, I think, between the 12 disciples and the rest of the people on the mountaintop. Um, So two things I want to briefly look at on this. Um, So first of all, a sight of God can make him the delight of our hearts. And secondly, a sight of God can make us know that we are the delight of his. Um, Often when we read the gospel stories, the writers of the stories have hidden references to other Bible passages inside the text. We've already seen it in John 6, where they're referencing the Old Testament and Moses and all that kind of thing. And sometimes it's a bit like you have to be a detective to kind of spot these things. And there's actually 
underneath some of these words that we've read, there's another Bible reference, an Old Testament reference that some people have noticed and picked out that they believe Jesus was referencing when he was speaking and teaching, and also Peter later when he replies to Jesus. They believe that there's a reference to the prophet Jeremiah. So let's look at what Jeremiah says. It's Jeremiah 15, verse 16. Um, So he says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. So what I think this, this, this tells us is that when we take Jesus at his word, when we taste and see that he is good, when we entrust ourselves to him, when we make his presence, his living word, our daily reality, God does something in us where he awakens delight in us. And I think that's what the disciples had. I think you can hear that in Peter's words. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We can't produce delight in ourselves. That's the thing with delight. It just bubbles up from within. There's nothing I can do to make myself delight more. But if I truly entrust myself to Jesus, if I truly cherish the words he gives me, God does something supernatural inside of me, and I start to delight in him even more. I believe that this is what caused Peter to, fully clothed, jump out of the boat and swim to Jesus on the shore later on in John 21. I believe this is what caused all of the disciples to leave their jobs, their homes, their livelihoods, and follow this man. They may not have known what it was about Jesus that they wanted to follow, but they knew that something was drawing them to him. Again, when he spoke something burned inside of them. You have the words of eternal life. So we want to catch a sight of him, and we want to let that sight of him stoke in us those fires of delight. We want it to draw us to him in constant abiding relationship. Um, Jamie shared this quote with us from John Piper. If all you have is a decision for Christ and no delight in Christ, you don't have Christ. Again, there's two ways you can look at that. That can be a, a condemning thing, like, what? You mean I don't have Christ? Or it can be an invitation. There's so much more of Christ for me to experience. I can delight in him. Uh, George Muller, uh, an evangelist from the uh, 1800s, put it a slightly different way. He said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. So it's not about what we do. It's, it's about, is our soul happy in the Lord? Are we delighting in him? So just the final point today, a sight of God can make us know that we are the delight of his heart. Ultimately, nothing will stir delight in us more than the realization that he delights in us. Zephaniah 3 verse 17, for the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty savior. He will take delight in you with gladness, with his love He will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. That's his truth. Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He endured the pain and humiliation of the cross, the agony of being separated from his father, of bearing all of our sin and shame, Why? For the joy set before him. And that joy, I believe, 
wasn't just about status. It wasn't just about him being the name above every other name and finally going back to that place. It was relationship. That was the joy set before him. Unbroken relationship with his father and unbroken relationship with us. John 17 verse 3 says this, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that we know him. That is the essence of eternal life, is relationship with him, the one who delights in us. And that's why I find a picture in John 21 of him on the beach, eating grilled fish with his his disciples, so powerful. Because that's what, what delighted him. He rose from the dead, and that was the way he chose to spend time with them. He, he went through the cross. He rose again so that he could be with us. And this is what he's calling us to. So I've got a few questions for us to ponder. This could be in response today. It could be as you chat with people in the week um, with your friends. It could be as you chat with God, as you take time to just chat to him. But these are the questions I think we can ponder today. So number one, what helps or hinders me recognizing and celebrating him in my everyday? When do I notice that? And when do I not notice that? Is there stuff that gets in the way of me noticing that? Number two, how do I entrust myself completely to the one who died for me? And what will that look like? Remember, this isn't something that happens once and for all. This is a daily thing. We daily have to entrust ourselves to him. And it looks different every time. So what does that look like? And finally, do I know that he delights in me? Jesus, show me this. There's an invitation for us to taste that delight, that same delight that the disciples had that made them say, I don't care if I really understand what's going on right now. I delight in Jesus and I'm going to follow him because I've encountered his love. And that's, that's me done. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Lifeline Church. We hope this message has been an encouragement to you. We are a relational church with a passion to demonstrate God's love to one another and our surrounding community in real and practical ways. We believe that God has called us to have an impact on our families, our communities and our nation. We'd love to connect further with you, so please do visit our website at lifelinechurch.co.uk on Facebook, lifeline.church.uk or Twitter at Lifeline UK.